You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Oh, James, why are you so troublesome to us? We just heard you tell us in verse 24 that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul says a person is justified by faith apart from works. You just told us, James, in verse 21, that Abraham, our father, was justified by works. But in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul writes, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For the Scripture says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. James, why are you disagreeing with Paul? We like Paul. We're Protestants, right? We're We're products of the Reformation. We cry sola fide. By faith alone, we're justified. So James, we come to this long section of your letter, which we've been studying together as a church, this long section where you talk about faith a lot. You mentioned faith 14 times in 13 verses. And here's your one chance to give us a clear definition of faith, to give us a clear understanding of how one uh, is saved, to give a clear definition of justification. What does it mean to be made right with God, because justification deals with rightness or righteousness or realigning our lives with God. Here's your one chance, and you don't mention Jesus once in all of those verses. I mean, we're evangelicals, right? And that means, among other things, we love the evangelium, which is the message of the gospel of grace. We love Jesus. And we sense deep down inside of us that Jesus is actually really important when it comes to salvation. So, James, why are you talking so much about faith and justification and you don't even mention Jesus once? James, are you just messing with us? And the answer is, sort of. Like, James is actually kind of messing with us. And he was messing with the original audience. James is being provocative. He knows he's writing to Christians. He knows that his audience believes the gospel that Paul preaches. That we're justified by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But James is a master at rhetoric here because he's writing in a way that sounds like Paul but seems to contradict Paul. And it's like he's, he's kind of just poking, provoking. The, it's like he's taking a needle and he's kind of sticking the audience, right? They hear it read and they're just like, Wait, they sit up, wait, what, what did he say? He's, uh, he's actually provocative from the very outset. Look at verse 14 again in the passage that uh, Stephanie just read. James chapter 2, verse 14. You can just leave it open to James, James 2 because that's where we'll be. Listen to how provocative this opening verse is. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him. So a hypothetical person, this person says they have faith, they claim to have faith in Jesus, they can, this guy can give you his testimony. 
Maybe he went down front at church and received Christ. Maybe he went through confirmation class, learned about the doctrines of the faith. Maybe he went to camp one summer, and one evening he heard this emotional, moving talk about Jesus, and he threw his stick in the fire and became a Christian, right? And he can give you his testimony. He can articulate what he believes. There's a problem, though, James says. All who look at him would say, he has no works. There's no, there's no sense of life change in him. There's no new direction in his life. There's no evidence that his faith seems to be producing. And so James asked this question, can that faith save him? And that's when the audience sits up straight because they're probably hearing this letter read out loud and they're kind of like, you know, it's just like poke. The needle comes in. And they're like, wait, what did he say? Is James kind of, ch- is he proposing a new way to salvation? Is James saying that we're saved in some other way? And I don't think he is. You can't lift verses 14 through 26 out of their context. They, they fit in James chapter 2, which fits in the entire book of James, which fits in the New Testament. You can't separate them and take them in isolation. In James chapter 2, verse 1, look at verse 1, which we talked about last week. James says this, my brothers, so he's writing to Christians, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So James very clearly believes that the object of our faith as Christians is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That means as Christians that we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the anointed Messiah. And not only that, we believe he is Lord. He's master. He's king. And not only that, we believe he's returning in glory and he will reign forever as the king. Jesus, or James believes very clearly that Jesus is the object of faith and the source of salvation. But I think he's also saying something else. In our verses today, I think he is, he, he's, he's challenging our understanding of faith, of, of faith. And I think he wants us to, to ask the question, what is faith? Uh, because faith is so, so closely linked to, uh, to salvation, faith in Jesus, that if we don't understand what faith is, Uh, then we're trifling with something really uh, important. We need to be certain of what faith is. And I think James, he's not just poking and provoking the original audience. I think he's kind of messing with us today, too. Right? If you are a Christian, I think James wants to mess with you a little bit. I think he wants to, I think he wants you to think about what you mean when you say you have faith in Jesus Christ and not to take it lightly. Because unfortunately, in our consumer-driven society that we're all a part of, uh, it's easy for us to to, to treat faith as if it's transactional, right? You go to the salvation cash register, you lay down your faith, and he gives you salvation. And now you have it, right? And you walk away with salvation in your reusable shopping bag that you have to use now, right? And you're like, well, I'm glad I took care of that because I, I really, salvation sounds like a good thing. I give him the faith, he gives me the blessings. I give him the faith, he gives me the salvation. But saving faith is not transactional at all. It's transformational. It changes us totally. Saving faith is not just cerebral, it's relational. It unites us to a person who forever alters our direction and affections, doesn't it? If you're here today and you are not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. Uh, It 
probably means that in some way you're exploring what faith means. And I think that's awesome, and I think it's courageous, and I'm grateful for that. But I think actually James wants to sort of mess with you a little bit too. And I think he wants you to consider what is faith actually? And not just come up with a definition in your own mind, and not be swayed by false portrayals of faith that you've seen that have kind of bothered you. Because all of you and all of us have seen those who, who profess faith, like this guy in verse 14, but show no evidence. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of caused you to come up short a little bit. It's maybe caused you to reject faith uh, in Christ as something that's just sort of weak, tepid, hypocritical. But what James wants to say to us is faith, saving faith, is real. It's robust. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's a life-altering, life-changing reality. It's a life-shaping reality. How can I know if I have real faith? Saving faith. And I think that's the question that James is trying to answer in our passage today. How can I know? He's going to give four illustrations to answer the question. But here's the big idea of his, his big answer, I think, in summary. I think what James is going to say is that saving faith is alive. It's not dead. Saving faith is alive. It's alive to others, and it's alive to God. And I want to look at those two things just for a few minutes. Okay, So let's talk about how saving faith is alive to others first. Look at, uh, back at James 2. He gives two illustrations about how saving faith is alive to others. One is negative, negative illustration, kind of what faith is not. And then one is positive. Let's look at the negative one first. Verse 15 and 16. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, Again, hypothetical situation, we become aware of one of our brothers or sisters whose, whose basic needs are not being met. They don't have enough clothes to keep them warm. They don't have enough food to eat. And our response to that is um, to bless them, go in peace, right? Chin up. You know, don't worry. Things are going to get better out there. The Lord bless you. And then our, the, our second response to them is to give them some advice. Hey, uh, stay warm out there. You know, eat plenty of food, you know, get a job maybe, or, you know, just hope things get better for you. And we give them advice. James says, what good is that? On the surface, I think James is saying, hey, you know how they'll be warmed and be filled? If you give them some clothes and give them some food. I think that's what he's trying to say uh, to us. But at a deeper level, I think James is railing against what I, what I will call the, the pretense of piety. You know what piety is? It's godliness. It's, it's religious devotion. It's spiritual devotion. The person who's responding to the need here uh, is just pretending to be godly. It's false Piety. They're saying, hey, there's a need that I see, but I don't really want to personally get involved. So if I just say the right thing, if I just say the most godly sounding thing I can come up with, then I'm off the hook and, you know, I don't really have to to do anything. So praying for you, right? Bless you. Lord bless you. Go in peace. It's just a comfortable cop out, but it's masked in piety and godliness. 
And James says, that stinks. It's speaking words of faith, but demonstrating zero compassion. It's hiding behind God language, but giving absolutely none of your stuff to meet the need. It's hiding behind God, but having zero uh, compassion, being indifferent to his people who are hurting and in need. I remember uh, a number of years ago, I was at a gathering of, a large gathering of family and friends, and for some reason, a group of us started talking about poverty, and we started talking about the poor in our cities in the United States, and um, none of us had any really good ideas about what to do with the problem, and so the the conversation was winding down, and uh, one of the older guys just kind of ended the conversation with this. He said, well, you know, Jesus said that you're always going to have the poor with you. And that was just, that was that. That was the end of the, that was a total conversation stopper. Now, I was a younger, I was young in my faith at the time. I really did not know what to, how to respond to that. I didn't know what to say. But it just bothered me that that's how he ended the conversation. And it still bothers me today. I don't know if you have conversations that kind of keep coming back. It was 20 years ago that I had this conversation, and I still think about it. It just bothered me. I think what bothered me is this, this older guy used Jesus... Uh, as an excuse to not get involved, to not do anything about the poor. But the more I've learned over the years, that's actually not what Jesus was saying there. He wasn't saying, oh, you'll always have the poor with you, so don't even worry about it. Nothing you can do. Don't even try. What he was saying is, you will always have the poor with you to spend yourself on, to give yourself to. There will always be poverty, so you will always, as a follower of me, have to give of yourself and your stuff for those who are broken. That's what Jesus was saying. If you or I see a brother or a sister in need, and we can help meet that need, but we are indifferent to that or to them, or we just blow them off, what James is saying is that there's something that's not alive in you or in me. Look at his... Conclusion to this little illustration, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's not saying, hey, this is kind of like partial, this is kind of like half faith. No, he's saying this is dead faith. It's it's dead to others. It's not what saving faith looks like. Let's look at a positive illustration down in verse 25. Our, uh, our positive example of faith is an unlikely person. Uh, it's a woman uh, of disrepute. She's a prostitute. But not only that, she is a foreigner to God's Old Testament people, Israel. Uh, she is from a polytheistic pagan culture. She's a Canaanite. Her name is Rahab. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute? Justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, you may or may not know this story of Rahab. Uh, In the book of Joshua, which is the sixth book of the Bible, God is about to lead his people into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. Uh, Moses has died, and now Joshua is leading God's people. He's going to lead them in. And so Joshua sends two spies to do a, a little recon mission over in the land of Canaan, specifically in the city of Jericho, which is the entry point into the promised land. Go go see what's going on over there, come back with word, and it'll help us as we go in. And so these two spies go, and they take up lodging in Rahab's 
place because she lives in the city wall of Jericho. The king of Jericho finds out about the spies and he sends some men to go find these guys because he wants to kill them. He wants to get rid of them. But Rahab hides these two men in her house and then she, she diverts the authorities. She kind of sends them off on a wild goose chase. Kind of like, yeah, they were here, but I think, you know, they went like that away, right? And the guys head out. When Rahab does this, she risks her life for them. This is risky compassion. This could have cost Rahab her life that very day. But she gave of herself fully. She gave of her home. She gave of her money. She gave of her ingenuity. Uh, She risked her very safety. Risky compassion. Now, why did she do this? Well, it's because she'd been changed by faith. Something was alive in her. Something that had changed. Listen to what she uh, tells the two spies in Joshua 2.11. She says, The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So she's saying to them, Yahweh is your God and Yahweh is my God. So that means we are connected in some way. So I will give myself on your behalf. Even if I don't know that I'm going to benefit personally from it, I will risk my life uh, for you. Her faith had changed her and it literally saved her life. How do we know she had faith? She showed it. Her risky compassion, her faith was alive to others. Look at the summary statement of this illustration in verse 26. James writes, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You You see what James is doing there? He's holding faith and works together in unity. Like, if you separate a body and a spirit, what do you have? You got a dead person. If you separate faith and works, what do you got? You got dead faith. Saving faith is alive to others. Uh, Saving faith is always accompanied by works. And in, in Rahab's case, it was works toward others. She gave herself sacrificially on behalf of others. So, what does this mean for us? I think practically, it means that a regenerated person, a Christian, a justified person, will give of herself, will give of himself uh, on behalf of others, will give themselves to the needs of the broken. And so th- needs are everywhere. Needs surround us. And I don't wanna, I'm not saying this at all to put, put us under the pile, and this is not a guilt thing, because we can't do everything to meet all the needs that we're aware of. But here's the deal. We also can't do nothing. To meet those needs. There are brothers and sisters who we know of who are lonely and need our time. There are brothers and sisters who are hungry and need our food. There are brothers and sisters who are unemployed and need our help getting a job. There are widows uh, who need our help around their house. There are orphans who need our love and our care and our support. They need parents. Saving faith can never be indifferent to these, these needs, right? One commentator that I read this week was writing about the early church in the book of Acts, and he said this, and I thought this was great. He said, the early Christians had an intolerant attitude towards want. He said, private ownership was not denied 
or criticized, but no piece of private good was held back if a need of a brother or sister might be met. And that's what James calls a true and living faith. Saving faith is alive to others. It's aware of others, not indifferent. Now, let's look at two more illustrations about how saving faith is alive to God. We've looked at the periphery of our passage. Let's look at the middle for a second, where it talks about how saving faith is alive to God. And first, negative example, then positive example. Right? Let's look at this first example. It's the demons, verse uh, 18. Look about halfway through verse 18. James writes, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is saying, hey, you believe that God is one, that's great. You ought to believe that. That is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. Uh, You should believe there's only one God. Actually, that's what the people of God have always believed. That's the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the centerpiece in Hebrew morning and evening prayer meetings. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what the people have always believed. And you know what the result of saying that and believing that is? It's the very next verse in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Believe in one God and love him. But what James is saying is that the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. They're terrified. They bristle with fear. Jonathan Edwards, um, he he gave an entire sermon on this one verse, uh, verse 19. And the name of the sermon was, True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. Now, Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest preachers in American history, but he needed some help with his sermon titles. If you Google his sermon titles, they're never very encouraging. You're never thinking, man, I want to listen to that one. Uh, even though they're amazing sermons. I was reading some of this sermon uh, this week, and uh, it's a little over 10,000 words. All right? to get, so to give you a comparison, the sermon you're hearing right now is a little over 3,000 words. Okay? So Jonathan Edwards could preach him some sermons about one verse, and he preached on this verse. And one of the things he said uh, is that the, that the demons had gone to the best divinity school available. They'd got, they had the best seminary degree available in the universe. They'd been into the throne room of God. They'd been into the heavens. But their knowledge of God, their belief in God, did not change them. You remember how demons would often cry out when they encountered Jesus? Like, demons were never like, oh, sweet, here comes Jesus. Let's go say hi to him, you know? <laughs> they were not happy to see Jesus. In Mark 1, verse 24, a demon cries out, what have, we to do, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. They knew who he was, and it terrified them. Scared the pants off of them. What James is saying here uh, is that the demons believe, but they have no peace with God. And I think it's a warning for us as people. It's possible for you to have sound doctrine and still be a demon. It's possible for you to check all the right belief boxes and still be a demon. It's possible uh, for you to respect God 
but to, in his power, but to still be a demon. Not like literally a demon. I know you're not an evil spirit, uh, but to be God's enemy, to be opposed to him, to be at war with him. If our beliefs about God only lead to fear and not to peace, then we've got to examine what we mean when we say faith. If, if we only alter our behavior uh, because of fear, what might happen to us, then we've got to alter our understanding and our definition of faith. If we're not drawing near to God, but we're just kind of avoiding him, then we've got to examine what we mean when we say that we have faith. The faith of demons doesn't save them because it's dead faith. It's dead toward God. All right? Now let's look at a positive illustration. It's our last illustration. It's Abraham's faith. Look over at verse uh, 21 in James 2. This This is what faith that's alive to God looks like. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Let me just take a little parenthesis here and talk a little bit about this word justified because it's problematic how, how James is using it here. This verse seems to put James at odds with the apostle Paul because Paul says we're justified by faith, but James seems to be saying here that Abraham and therefore us are justified by works. And so what's going on? Well, what's the discrepancy? Well, I think Paul and James are talking, using the word justified, but they're talking about them in a little bit different way. Uh, I think the difference is perspectival. They're looking at them from different perspectives. Uh, they're looking at this word justified from different angles. Uh, justify means to make right or to make righteous, to, to make true, to align. Right? And that's, and that's, so Paul says we're justified or made righteous by faith. But the word justify can also mean to prove right or to prove righteous or to prove true, right? So if you and I are having a conversation and I say to you, hey, justify, you know, we're debating about something. I say, hey, justify that statement that you just made. I don't mean make that statement true. I mean prove that statement to be true, right? I think that's how James is using the word justified here. Give you one more illustration. Imagine that I am going to build a house. And I'm beginning to frame the house, okay? And this is clearly an illustration because I will never be building a house. I would never be caught doing this, all right? But I'm framing this house, um, and what, what I would do is I would justify the studs, the vertical beam, and the walls. I would justify them this direction, and I would justify them this direction, meaning I would align them. I would make sure that they are true. Now, over time, once that house was built those studs, those vertical beams would prove themselves to be justified, right? Because, or not, uh, because they could hold the weight that they're meant to hold. And, you know, they're not jutting out into the room and causing wavy walls. They prove themselves to be justified. The builder justified the beams. They could not justify themselves. But over time, they proved themselves to be justified because they're able to perform in the way that they're made to, to perform. Right? I think that's the way Paul or James is using this term justified here. Now, look what he says about Abraham. Here's the example. Go back to verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Now, many of you know the story uh, that James is talking about here. Let me give you just a couple minute refresher about this story of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, God promises Abraham that he, he's going to have tons of descendants. He takes him outside one evening. It's a starry night. And he, he says, Abraham, look up at the stars. And your descendants are going to be like that. You, you can't count the stars. They're, innumer- they're innumerable. That's how your descendants are going to be. Problem is, Abraham is really old. He's about 85 at this time. And he has no kids. Right? So he's like, yeah, I probably need one before I'm going to have like innumerable. Right? Um, but in Genesis 15, it says that Abraham trusts God. He believes God. And it says in verse six in Genesis 15, that God counts that belief as righteousness in Abraham. Abraham is declared righteous. He's justified in that moment. Now, a few years later, when he's about a hundred years old, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Even later, when Isaac has grown up some, he's a kid, Uh, In Genesis chapter 22, uh, this is probably about 25, 30 years from Genesis chapter 15. God says this to Abraham. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, to a mountain in which I'll show you. And I want you to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering to me. And that just sounds like the craziest thing I've ever heard. Because wait, didn't you say 30 years ago, stars, descendants like the stars, Now i got one son, and you want to take him away? But you know what happened. Abraham obeyed God. He did not withhold his son, his only son. Uh, He trusted God. He still believed God. And so he and Isaac are walking up this mountain together, and uh, Isaac's like, hey, Dad, um, I'm noticing we have, like, the wood. I'm noticing we have the fire, the flame. Um, but we don't have the lamb for the sacrifice. And Abraham looks at his son. I'm sure his heart was breaking at this moment, and he says these words of faith. God will provide a lamb. God will provide a lamb. Abraham bound his son. He took him to the top of the mountain. He was about to do it, and as he raised the knife, God stopped him. But Abraham was going through with it. He was going to go through with it because he believed God. He believed that God could even raise his son from the dead because he believed the promise about the descendants, and he knew that God would take care of what he promised. Now, what James is saying in the the passage we read today is that Abraham's obedience in Genesis chapter 22 was a fulfillment of what God had already said about him in Genesis 15, 30 years before. He was righteous. Abraham was declared by God as righteous in Genesis 15. He was justified by faith. Abraham was proven uh, to be righteous in Genesis chapter 22. He was justified by his works. How do we know that Abraham had saving faith? By his works. By his unquestioning obedience to God. And look at how verse 23 um, ends. This is great. Verse 23, it says, And Abraham was called a friend of God. 
I love that. The demon's belief led to fear, but Abraham's belief led to friendship with God. You see, dead faith only obeys in order to get something from God or to avoid punishment by God. But living faith obeys God simply because of God himself, because God is the highest good, because God is the most beautiful one that that this person can imagine, because God is the greatest friend that this person has, because living faith just wants fellowship with God for who he is. It's a friend of God. So for you and I to see God as our friend, if you're going to see God as your friend, your highest love, someone you long to be with, you'd actually have to be changed inside. You'd have to be made new. You'd have to be aligned with him, justified, right? Made righteous. And this is something you can't do for yourself. You cannot justify yourself. And God in his grace, though, in his love and his compassion, has made a way uh, for us to be justified. Just like Abraham, God did not withhold his son, his one and only son, from the ones he loved. He gave his son sacrificially uh, for the ones uh, that he loved. God, just like he said he would do to Abraham, provided a lamb. And Jesus, his son, uh, this time died for sin and for death. But he didn't stay dead because just like Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, God raised his son Jesus from the dead. And in doing so, sin and death were conquered. And through our faith, our trust in Jesus, in his death and resurrection for us, we're, made, we're justified. We're made right. We have peace with God. We're a friend of God. So I want to ask you, as you sit there, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Because if you do, it will begin to show Not perfectly, because you'll make lots of mistakes, because you still got sin, and it won't always show. But it will begin to show. You'll begin to see it. And others will begin to see it, too. What James is saying in our text today is that saving faith is evidenced by works. Saving faith is alive to God and alive to others. Love God, love, love other people. It's the two greatest commandments. Only Jesus did that perfectly, right? Jesus held nothing back from God, and he held nothing back from other people. The glory of the gospel, though, is is that faith is a living thing in us. And as we trust in Jesus, as we continue to trust in Jesus, he is actually forming his life in us by his spirit so that we can live like him, too. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.